Let's have a chat with a real retiree, David Fultz, in this, the 82nd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining. We have a fun one today. Really looking forward to this for a few reasons. One is it's the first of this new style of having on what I'll call, quote unquote, real people to the show to talk about their history and experiences and knowledge and challenges and planning their own retirements. So that's one reason why I'm excited. The other one, today's inaugural guest for this, is none other than Mr. Dave Fultz, who is a frequent contributor and a very hands-on moderator slash uh, admin of the Retirement Planning Education Facebook group. So hello, Mr. Fultz. Hello, Andy. It's nice to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I, I very much appreciate all your help. Anyone who's in the Facebook group knows you well. They may not see you directly per se, but uh, I'm sure they all appreciate all the work you put in. And thank, thank you for agreeing to be the guinea pig for today's episode. So just to give a quick rundown to everyone listening, the, the intention of this style, this real people episode is to have on other folks who are in or near retirement that have done or are doing their own planning to some extent. Maybe they work with advisors, maybe they don't, doesn't particularly matter. I just want to talk to people, real people who've had the challenges, the concerns, um, they, they have at least some of the knowledge to, um, whether it's investing or taxes or just general cash flow budgeting type stuff, or even the non-financial stuff of, of retirement, meaning and purpose and fulfillment. People who have some experience to share, um, you know, things to learn from, or even maybe they have questions that, that they'll put out to, to the universe that other future guests will, will help address. So uh, that, that's that. We'll see how this goes. There is a list of standard questions I plan on asking everyone who comes on, just so you all listening can hear the, the same question get addressed by different folks that have, again, different perspective, different views, different experiences. With that, I guess we'll get into it. So I already kind of stole a thunder a little bit. I was going to ask what's your name, and you are uh, none other than, do you go by David or Dave Fultz? I like David. David Fultz. Okay, everyone yeah. put that messed up. When you see me in the Facebook group, it is David Fultz. Uh, I would normally ask next, how did you find out about this podcast? Uh, I, I know how you got here, but maybe can you just recap for everyone listening uh, how, how you and I sort of know each other? Well, you had a Facebook group and it was live that you used to do that I started watching you on Facebook and interacting with the group. And that's kind of how we got started. I think it was at the near the very beginning of when you started the Facebook group. And so that kind of led to me like posting a lot. I had posted some on the Boggleheads, so I was kind of familiar with that format of talking with others and interacting in that way. And I really liked the way that you describe things and the way that you explain things. And I thought that you were a really smart guy and I could learn a lot. Blushing. Stop. <laughs> no, thank you. So so yeah, that I, I do recall. So started the group in April of 2020. Uh, started doing live videos in the group in June of 2020. And you definitely stood out in a good way. Very active. You you're on, I think, every video every week and very active with responses and questions. And I greatly appreciated the involvement, the engagement and, and the support. Um, you were helping answer other questions as well. 
And so as the group started to grow, I realized I, I could really benefit from some help in, in sort of managing the, the Facebook group, which is, you know, uh, approving people who want to join, deleting out bad comments, spam comments, whatever. And I asked you, and I, I didn't know what you'd say, but I kind of pitched it as, hey, you seem to enjoy the group. I really appreciate all, all the, the, the time you spend and engagement you have. What do you think about having a little bit of shape and control of the group by getting to help administer and clean out some of the riffraff? And have a little bit of control of the direction of the group. And, and you, you graciously said yes. And I am super appreciative for it. Um, so, yeah, we go back, I don't know, better part of four years at this point. So It's hard to believe that it's been that long. And it's almost like the last years didn't happen. The pandemic was a weird thing. It just like time yeah. everything. Yep. All right. Uh, in what state do you live? I live in the great state of Ohio. And, and I, I live that? near... Um, just to let you know a little bit, um, I live near where Min William McKinley, the 25th president, was born. Right. And William McKinley was one of the five presidents from Ohio that fought in the Civil War. Interesting. Including um, U.S. Grant, who incidentally was scammed in the stock market, lost his fortune in the stock market, and Mark Twain helped him with his autobiography to regain his fortune before he passed away. So he had something left oh. to give his family before he died. Okay. Very cool. I have a little bit of trace to Ohio. My, my grandfather lived there for a while and I visited him a few times. He lived in Salina, Salina. I don't know how to pronounce it. It was uh, very close to the Indiana border. I don't know whether it was North or South, but I did go to the Neil Armstrong museum when I was there visiting him. Oh, cool. And the air show. I don't remember where. It was in Dayton, maybe. I don't recall, but yeah, nice place. All yeah, right. Ohio is first in flight. That's what's on the license plate. First in flight from the Wright brothers. Because the Wright brothers, um, their father was a minister. And he told them the Bible said that no one was going to be able to be allowed to fly except for angels. And they said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> they showed him otherwise, huh? Yep. That's the history. Okay. How old are you? I'm 65. Okay. Ooh, exciting. And actually, I just um, went on Medicare just recently. Okay. Quick sidebar. How was that process, signing up and getting that all figured out? It was very interesting. Um, I used a lot of Daniel Roberts' information from Boomer Benefits, and I read her book. She has a really excellent book on Medicare. Um, for pitfalls to avoid. And after reading that book, that was very helpful for me to make a decision about what I was going to choose. I think most people don't realize about Medicare is there's a lot of gaps and that Medicare doesn't really pay 100% like some people think it does. So it actually probably pays between 60 and 70%. So you have a lot of gaps that need to be filled. So part of that is trying to determine and what insurance you want to go with, whether it's a supplement or an advantage plan. And I knew that I wanted to go the supplement way. So one of the things that she talked about in her book was to use the state health insurance plan program to find out more about how Medicare worked and what the best insurance company was to use for your particular state. So I talked to several times a couple of ship volunteers that kind of steered me to know kind of what the best insurance was. So prior to calling Boomer Benefits 
and signing up, I was pretty well informed as far as what I wanted to get. So that's how that all worked. That's great. And and I'm glad you brought that up. So SHIP, S-H-I-P is what? State Health Insurance Plan or something? Yes. Um, and I think most, if not all states, have a have a SHIP um, organization or, or whatever that you can yes. reach out to yep. that help with questions like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But that was started through the, when the Affordable Care Act was first um, passed. That was part of the Affordable Care Act that those folks would be helping people too, not only with um, Medicare, but also with the Affordable Care Act insurance. Got it. And before I go on to the next question, I, I don't know how I forgot this, but I forgot the dad joke. I promised myself I do dad jokes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. So I'll give you two for the fun of it. This one's more of a statement, not a question, but everyone was excited at the autopsy club because it was open mic night for Mike. Mike, yeah, he got, <laughs> right, he got opened up. <laughs> and finally, today I had someone knock on my door asking for small donations toward the local swimming pool, so I gave him a glass of water. That's pretty good, Andy. Thank you, thank you. So bad, it's good. Okay, uh, sorry. So you were sixty-five. Do you have a significant other? I do. Her name is Cheryl, and we've been married thirty-three years. Um. I met her through a doctor I worked with in private practice. Her sister worked as a secretary for him, and we were introduced through her sister, and um, that's how we met. And um, I think we were talking about this earlier, but when we first were married, she worked as an industrial seamstress, so that's very taxing on your hands and basically your whole body. So she had done that for 17 years. So after about five years of marriage, she was starting to have problems with her hands and her back. So I told her that it probably would make more sense for me to work more and for her to stop working. So she actually stopped working like after about five years of our marriage. And then um, I always like to tease her because her mother actually worked to age 80. And so I tell her that she was part of the fire early fire movement and she got to retire 45 years earlier than her mother trendsetter yeah yeah original fire person yeah look at that and, and so just for those listening I, i'm not asking personal questions like significant other status just for the sake of prying and being nosy I, I think this is a super important question um for better or worse you know whether you're single married or even not married but have a significant other in your plans that that very much impacts uh Various planning, financial planning, non-financial planning, et cetera. So I think it's a key key thing to know for uh, an interview like this. So, so thank you for sharing. Sure. All right. Work status. Do you work? If not, where did you work? Actually, I'm retired. I've been retired since age 55. Um, <laughs> I did a phased retirement where I worked from 55 to 60, but I really cut back on the number of hours that I worked. Um, I'm an I was an occupational therapist. I'm retired now. Um, I had a lot of private contracts between me and hospitals, um, rehab centers, uh, doctor's offices. I did a lot of um, private practice, but I also did self-employed private practice. But I also worked as an employee sometimes, too, because that was beneficial as far as with health insurance. So I kind of worked, sometimes I would be working full-time and then I would also have contracts with other places that I would work weekends. 
So that's kind of like how how that worked. And then with regards to like the phased retirement, it kind of allowed me to go from 55 to 60. That worked that worked a little bit better because it allowed me to kind of get used to the idea of being retired. So I could see how the experience was. And as I gradually liked it more and more, I worked less and less until I finally said, what am I working every fourth weekend for? Right. So I said, no, it, makes, it kind of makes sense just to completely stop working because I really was enjoying just being retired. That's great. And that's a great way to go about it. A lot of people aren't necessarily able to do the the gradual wind down phase thing. But for many folks, it's it's really good to sort of dip your toes in the water and not go cold turkey from working, you know, full full time for 40 years or whatever to just stop. That could be a real shock to the system in multiple ways. Right. So you you yeah. went about it in a great way and I'm glad it worked yeah. out. All right, two very general questions. And a lot of these were, were crowdsourced from the Facebook group. So this list of questions may evolve over time, but these were things that I came up with in conjunction with other folks in the group to see what all people would would be interested in hearing. So uh, first, what are your financial goals and priorities for retirement? Um, the financial goals for retirement was we have always been savers and have always lived below our means. So I had a pretty good understanding of our expenses because when I first was married, one of the things that Cheryl had done that I wasn't doing was to actually track her spending with a ledger. She used a ledger and she also used envelopes to put her receipts in. So each month, what she would do is gather everything up and track the expenses. Well, when we first got married, that's what we did. So then for 30 well, it's been going on. I'm still doing it, but for we've been married 33 years. So, so when I was thinking about retiring, it made it a lot easier for the planning part because we really had a good awareness of what our expenses were. And we live a pretty modest lifestyle. I'd also tell you that the area that I live in is a really low cost of living area for housing. It's a really inexpensive area. And we've also lived in the same house that we were married in. So we've been there for 33 years. We really like the house a lot. We really like the um, surroundings. And we don't have really any intention to to move. And we're not really, a lot of people in retirement, like one of their goals is to do a lot of traveling. We don't really have that goal. So like our expenses are not really, that really that large. So that was kind of what made it easier, I think, for us to to do the early retirement and to do it kind of phased the way we did. Yeah. Do you have any particular goals? And you don't, you know, don't give specifics with numbers, but do you have goals for the money you have? Is it to the die with zero approach? Is it to leave money to people, to children, to charities, to whomever, or is you know anything else in particular? Yeah, it's actually the we're we don't have children. So the goal is to leave some of the money to our nephews and nieces and to leave some of the money to um, charity. And so that um, we kind of figured that out too. With the IRA money, we're going to use that towards more towards the charities and the um, other monies, um, whatever is left will go to the the nieces and nephews. Um, So as far as like a, 
as far as like a goal, like that we have, as far as it's just to be able to have enough, you know, to live. And, and um, the other thing too, is that we don't have long-term care insurance. So we didn't purchase that because I didn't really feel like that was a good, good idea. So some of the money that we have kind of set aside would go towards if we either one of us would have a long-term care need in the future. So I've kind of like partitioned that out as part of the money that we've, that we've saved. And I, I plan on um, keeping for, you know, as long as we would need it. Cause again, we don't have children, so there's not really going to be anybody that's going to step in. that's going to help um, with that. So. Makes sense. How about how about non-financial? Many people overlook this or get too hung up on the dollars and cents of a plan, which is important, but it's also good mm-hmm. to have non-monetary, you know, non-financial goals or priorities or things you want to do in retirement. How about that for for you? Anything in particular? I think the non-financial aspects were just to make sure that um, to work on our health, mm-hmm. diet, um, exercise, like. Um, one of the things about our house is that we have four separate lots um, that need to be taken care of. So basically from April to November, I'm outside like a lot in the day, daytime, um, because I don't have like a riding lawnmower. People, I think down the street, they look at me like, why is he always out in his yard like mowing with that walk behind mower? It takes him so long. Well, it's because it's great exercise and it's also being outside, which is really beneficial. Like I see this quite a bit, like um, people talk about, you got to get outside. You you can't stay inside, get off the screens, get outside, enjoy nature. And the house is perfect for that. Now, during the winter time, when I'm not outside as much, we have a treadmill that I use that Cheryl uses. Um, She goes, um, and does a little bit of dance and we try to stay in good shape that way. So it's basically with the um, diet um, exercise and looking towards, we really would like to have long longevity. We'd like to live as long as possible. And like, I think some of that is controllable. The controllable variables are your diet, exercise, sleep, right. those sort of areas. The uncontrollables are what you have, in your genetic future, which you can't really have much control over. So that's kind of how we look at that. Yeah. And and just curious, you mentioned obviously a lot of property. So you're out, outdoors a lot in, in the summer and winter. Uh, you're not, not as much. What do you do? Like I, I struggle. Is it seasonal affective disorder? I mean, I don't get full blown depressed in the winter, but I'm very much uh-huh. outdoors need to be active. Like yeah. one type person. And it's hard. You know, I enjoy cutting grass. I enjoy going for long. Uh-huh. Life and so yeah. There is none of that to do in the winter. So right. um, do you and or Cheryl have, 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 you know, issues, difficulties with winter not being outside? And, and what do you do about that? I know you said you work out and have a treadmill and stuff, but. Well, a lot of times too, when it snows here, Andy, um, I shovel the driveway. We have like a pretty long driveway. So I do that. Like, so I'm probably, although this winter has been pretty mild, a lot of times in the wintertime, like, there'd be maybe two or three times a week that I'm outside again or if i don't do that sometimes i'll take a walk you know just to have some to but i understand what you're saying about the light that you that you need more light and this area 
Um, it's kind of a fun fact here. There's an arsenal that's close to here. And the reason that the arsenal was built was because during World War II, they knew the Germans or Japanese couldn't bomb it. They wouldn't be able to bomb it because it has so many cloudy days that they couldn't plan their flight schedules because there's so much cloud. So this area does get a lot of cloud cover. So that definitely sometimes can be an issue here with not getting as much light. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. I just assumed because it was inland far enough, you figured you can't can't bomb there. But I I'm, you right. know, gotta recall back in World War II and earlier, it did go by by visual, you know, being able to spot targets on the ground and stuff like that. So right. Yeah. All right. Uh when did you start getting serious about planning for your retirement? You already sort of touched on it with the the budgeting and stuff yeah. you can track, but anything else to add? So way back, going way back to 1987, I had a financial planner write a plan for me. And actually there wasn't any financial planners around here that were like certified, I don't think. So I ended up driving to Akron, Ohio to get the plan done. And at that time, the plan was $2,000 to have that plan written up. And so he um, asked me if I wanted to continue with an ongoing relationship and I chose not to, but I still used that plan roughly to to kind of guide our retirement because it was a really pretty well thought out plan. Uh, you know, of course, when they make the projections, he made projections at that time, like, you know, I was in my thirties. So the projections that he's making for retirement, you know, like, well, 30 years later, yeah, the stock market's going to be 10, 10% a year. So if you invest this much, right. you're going to have that much. This was before, this was actually before the advent of personal computers. So when I went to see the um, the, the um, financial advisor, he um, had somebody that sold computers. Like they were just starting to sell computers to people. So I bought a computer, an IBM. It was an IBM clone computer, but it was so darn complicated. You had to put in all these codes. Yeah, yeah. You had to put in all these codes, and there was really nothing. There was nothing that you could do with it because I don't even know. If you look back at when the internet started, the number of people on the internet at that time, it was like a little like pamphlet. Like there were maybe like a hundred people that you had addresses that you could, that was basically when I bought that computer, I could have went on the internet and maybe communicated with maybe a hundred people. Right. And I don't even know what kind of questions I would have asked. So this was before computers. So I don't think that like the numbers, the ability of his projections how much more things are advanced now right. with how strong computers are that yeah it was a rough outline but it wasn't really maybe as accurate as it might have been if it was done today so yeah but that um, was helpful so i'm just curious so that you were roughly 30 at the time if i'm doing the, doing the math right um yeah what what was it basically was it just okay you you're assumed to spend this much going forward we assume you're going to make this much going forward and we assume you yeah. will return X percent going forward. So here's yep. your 50 year projection. Yep. Looks like and that's it. Okay. That was, that was pretty much it. There was, there weren't really a lot of things. There wasn't anything like where you get a plan today where they talk about Medicare right. or what kind of insurance you're going to have, or it wasn't that comprehensive where you would talk about, well, somebody like yourself would probably say, well, do you have an umbrella policy? Let's see what you're, 
um, plans are for, well, how are you covered for this insurance or that insurance? Like it wasn't any of that. It was just basically a, a rough projection of what what the numbers would be. And um, yeah, if you make this much um, and and at that time, like, the you know, as far as the numbers that I gave them, I'm not sure even if those numbers are really accurate as far as how my uh, career progressed and that sort of thing. So, sure. Yeah. So obviously you had the plan other than that, whether it was then or even now, what, what resources did you, or do you find most helpful in learning about retirement planning stuff? Well, I have a, a list of books and um, podcasts and YouTube videos that I wrote down. Would you like to, would you like to hear some of the books or should I, should I say the list or maybe just give you three of um, each? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe three of each. And, and I'm happy to to link all of it into the notes so people can see okay. just in the interest of time, just trim it up a little bit, perhaps. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I was really interested in creativity and how that related to financial planning. So like a couple of the books that I really liked a lot, one is kind of a, it's kind of a unique title. It's called a whack on the side of the head and a kick in the seat of the pants. And that's by Roger Van Oak. And then I'll tell you about the other book that I really benefited a lot from was called the debt squeeze that um, was written by Ron Blue. Now Ron Blue is a Christian author that wrote many years ago that Dave Ramsey, if you look back on what Dave Ramsey built his career on, a lot of the earlier ideas that Ron Blue talked about are similar to what Dave Ramsey created from all of his books and materials. So a lot of it was um, the power of not having debt. We never really had any kind of debt um, that, that, except more a mortgage we had a mortgage which we paid off fairly early in in our marriage and we were very debt adverse um so i think that was like a big a big help and let's see so i mentioned the books the um podcasts and youtube videos of course number one is retirement planning education i listened to that and watched that all the time <laughs> there's a there's a little bit of a plug for you. Yeah, so thank you. Yes. And no, anyways, I, I, you knew the questions ahead of time, but for people listening, I, I did not tell him yeah. any of this. So. No, no, not <laughs> absolutely not. No, I and I also I also like to follow Cody Garrett, the, the Measure Twice Planner on YouTube, and also approach Financial, who's another moderator on your Facebook group, Justin Pritchard. I think those are some really some really great resources for people to to look at. I do have a wide range of, of YouTube and podcasts that I listen to because I find that like you can, the thing about knowledge is that you don't really know what you don't know. Sure. And sometimes when people speak about ideas or financial planning concepts, there might be a little bit of a tweak that they're using on that idea that you didn't quite understand that idea quite as well as you thought you did that could be really beneficial to adding to how you look at things. Yeah, definitely. And and just for everyone listening and, and future uh, guests who, who might be on this show, this question, I, I will gladly promote and advocate and support anyone who makes good content, whether it's blogs, videos, podcasts, 
I'm not paid to say or, or you know recommend anything, nor are you or anyone else on on this. Right. Show. Yeah. But you know, I'll be the first one to give credit where credit is due. Anytime someone has uh, you know praiseworthy content, I'll, I'll gladly let people or myself you know support them and make that known. So so thank you for yeah. Like you'll see on the on on the group, I post a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah. I post a lot of videos, and I sometimes post about podcasts, but. I really think people should have a content filter so that you really have to be careful like what what you listen to. So I'm like really trying to be very careful about the people that I post. I've really kind of vetted them. I've really watched a lot of their content and really feel like there are some really unique and creative financial planners like yourself that that really have a good handle on helping people that people can learn a lot from that doesn't really require a lot of time now. Like you used to be, you have to read a book, you know, you'd have to spend a lot of time reading, but you can like these people that make these YouTube videos have probably read 50 books or a hundred books. They may have read that many books to bring it down to the level of a couple of YouTube videos. So you're really getting a lot of benefit from the content that they're squeezing into that YouTube video. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, it, it's great. The amount of availability and accessibility out there, basically everything you can want to know is floating around somewhere on the internet, yeah. it's a matter of finding it and sifting through the garbage from what yeah. is good, legit, as unbiased as possible. Right. That, that's, that's sort of the rub. That's a hard part to do. And then, like you said, I think you'll yeah. actually know it when you see it, but yeah. it takes some sifting. I call YouTube the Library of Alexandria. The only difference is during the Library of Alexandria, the Pharaoh, what he would do is the ships would come into port. And what he would do is he would send people onto those ships and the people on the ships had to give up all their books for the Pharaoh to be able to take them. And they were copied and then given back to the people on the ship. But at that time, the content of books that were written thousands of years ago were all very valuable because nothing really was, there was not that much writing that was done. And the things that were written were really, really valuable. But now with YouTube, it's not that way. You really have to, like I said, you have to really filter your content because there's not anybody filtering it for you. Yeah, that's true. And any joker with internet connection and a $5 webcam could go say whatever he or she wants on YouTube. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on. This is sort of broad, but how would you rate your knowledge of retirement related, investing related, tax related planning matters? I would probably rate it as excellent, but I always think that there's something more that you could learn and something more that you can benefit from. Um, so I kind of believe in the concept of Kaizen, which is continuous improvement. And I apply that to learning. So I love to learn, but I never think that I know everything or I can know everything and that there's always going to be somebody that can teach me more. Well said. I, I'm I'm with you. It's good to learn as much as you can. It's good to be confident in what you know, but we don't know what we don't know. And there's there's always improvements you can make in whether it's knowledge or anything, physical health, mental health, you know, there, there's... Yep. No one's perfect. No one's got it all figured out. So, 
regarding financial aspects of retirement planning, what do you wish you would have known or done differently when you were younger? I think that um, there's a book that's, are you a stock or are you a bond? I think that we were more like a bond. So I probably would have been a little less conservative in my asset allocation. I know that Benjamin Graham said like 25 to 75% invested in stocks that so you wouldn't want to go below 70. You wouldn't want to go below 25 and you wouldn't want to go above 75. Well, we were probably were a little bit less than 50% as we were going through the process of learning about investing. So I probably wish that we were a little bit more towards stocks, but that worked for us because we're, especially my wife is a conservative person. And I think that when you're married, I think it's really important for both people to be on the same page and to be in total agreement as far as how things are going to be done in the relationship when it comes to finances. And I really value um, my wife a lot. So that's, we were a little bit more on the conservative side. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And one I see firsthand in, in couples, oftentimes, the two people will have different views and feelings around willingness and ability to take risk. And and it could be tricky. If one person is super aggressive, one is super conservative, what do you do? You do, in effect, kind of have to split the difference, but both parties need to be okay with that. I guess like anything yeah. in, in, in a marriage or relationship, right? You're never going to agree on everything 100%. Right. Down to um, knowing how to compromise, communicate discuss and and agree at some point okay i have to give this up return i'll get this or, you know whatever it may be so this is a good example you know finances are no different than other things about relationships you have to compromise and communicate well about it all right regarding non-financial aspects of retirement same question what do you wish you would have known or done differently when you were younger um i wish i would have rested a little bit more and not worked as as much um, I really, there were some months where I worked like 28 days in a row, like wow. where I was just working way, way too much, but I was, um, yeah, I really liked what I did. I really liked the interactions with patients. I really liked the feeling of helping people. And there were periods of time where I had con a contract where I had one facility where I worked contracted with them for about 10 to 12 years i could set my hours any way i wanted and i really the facility that i worked with was very dynamic and got a lot of really high level rehab patients from a rehab hospital so that allowed me to really have a major impact on people's lives at that at that time so i really like that but i probably should have taken a few more vacations and maybe taking a few more days off. Yeah. Now, now, do you think it adversely impacted your health or you just mean looking back, you had the time you, you could have and should have enjoyed life more um, or, or the, you know, was it that, or was it like it did impact your hands or your body or your whatever now that. No, I, I wouldn't say it really impacted my health. Um, I wouldn't say there was any impact on my health. I think it was just more, that when you look back, okay, one thing I didn't mention was when I first when I first was in occupational, this is way back, but I was in occupational therapy school. 
um, I was working with a professor who started the hospice movement for occupational therapy in the United States. He practiced um, for a while over um, Europe and brought those ideas to the United States. So when I worked in hospice as a student, um, I worked with several people that were my age that were dying of cancer. And that had a real profound impact on my view of time and how important it was to use time and to value time and that sort of thing. So um, I've always had that that feeling like you only really get one shot in life and that you never know you never know when time is going to end. So you want to pack in as much as you can into the amount of time that you do have. But sometimes another occupational therapy concept is that you're supposed to have a balance between work, rest, and play. Um, I don't think that maybe I was as balanced as I should have been, but um, that was kind of how things worked out. So Mm -hmm. it's a similar story about myself. That's part of the reason why after nearly 20 years of doing the corporate grind, just realize, you know what, I just, I don't want this to be the rest of my life. Um, long commute, long hours, fairly stressful work. And you know, I was what, I was just about 40 at the time when I, when I had this sort of epiphany, like, yeah, this, this is going to be my next 20 something years. And, and then what? So I decided I, you know, wanted and needed to do something different to, to get more balance in life and still work hard, still need to earn money because relatively young, have a family, et cetera. But just need more flexibility, more balance, uh, do something more fulfilling, less time intensive between not just a time in office, but also commute. And and wanted something that, you know, I'd help people individually. So ended up, this is what I want to do, become, you know, quit the corporate world, start my own advisory business. And, and here I am. And thankfully it worked out well. But, I, you know, I, I realized relatively soon, I guess, late 30s, 40-ish, that time is limited. Um, life is important. Enjoy what you can, whether it's your kids, whether it's your physical health, whether, you know, whatever it might be, do it while you can. Now you can't just completely give up responsibilities and, and, you know, financial necessities and whatever, but to the extent you can strike a balance, do it sooner rather than later. So. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of related and kind of morbid comment. So today is the day before my 46th birthday. So I was driving my kids to school. Um, and, you know, in the morning, my, my older daughter, who, who's 16, said, are you excited about tomorrow? And I, I had no idea what she was talking about. I was like, what, you're, you're cheering in a the basketball game tomorrow? She's like, no, it's your birthday. I said, like, oh, okay, yeah, it is. Like, it, it didn't even, <laughs> I know what my birthday is, but, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it. Uh-huh. And, and she's like, she was very excited for it. And I, I, I clearly, you know, I, I forgot about it. And uh, she's like, aren't you excited? I said, yeah, I guess so. And she's like, well, you only have a certain number of birthdays in your life. And I thought about it. I'm like, wow. Okay. So I'm 46 tomorrow. I'm, and I told her I'm probably more than half done with birthdays at this point. And, and what, I, I didn't mean it to, to sound like cynical or sour or Debbie Downer, but that's the first thought that came to mind. Like I'm probably past the halfway point in my life, um, you know, meaning 92. And I don't know, like she, she was kind of, I, I can tell she, she wasn't Lord per se, but she didn't know how to process that comment. She knew what it meant. She's old enough to, to get it. Yeah. Process it. I was like, that really got me thinking. Like, wow. Um, yeah. So I'll be 46 tomorrow and, and I should you know, try to continue to make the most out of life. Anyway, not, not, I don't know where I'm going with that, but 
I, you know, I, I've also realized even in my thirties, I, I think I sort of overdo it with some things. Like I was real big into running and almost obsessive about running and trying to do marathons and these crazy races. And I enjoyed it. Obviously it's great physical activity, but part of me was like, I'm not going to be able to do this in 10 years and 20 years. My knees aren't going to hold up my, you know, my whatever is not going to kind of like this anymore. So let me do as much as I can while I still can. And so maybe that's just me justifying a compulsive behavior. But for a while now, I, you know, I've been serious about, I, I realize how life is likely going to play out, not just for me, but for everyone. Let me do what I can while I can. So with what I got. Anyway, went off on a, on a tangent there, but um, yeah, it, it's important to realize what we have in this world is limited. Make the most of it to the best of your abilities. Just leave it at that, I guess. All right, where were we? Um, next, do you work with a financial advisor? If so, what makes it worth it to you? I do not work with a financial advisor. Okay. But you did get that one time the, plan, right? Other yeah. And I also had a, a brokerage that um, they offered the services of a financial planner. And when they did the financial plan for me, they told me about a higher asset allocation. I didn't listen to them either. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, well, yeah. And yeah, I, 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 I saw something that was real interesting about asset allocation and how those are determined that apparently when those large brokerages make those recommendations, like a 70-30, that's all like based on like where you can't really sue somebody. You can't sue them and say, well, yeah, 70-30 allocation because it does make sense. I mean, you can show them the numbers and why that really, why that made a lot of sense for that particular individual because those those are hard numbers that they're that they're using but again when you have somebody talking numbers and you have an emotional response to loss that it's hard to overcome that feeling of well if it drops 50% and your wife comes to you and says looks at the statement and says what the heck happened here? Uh, I thought you said the stock market went up 75% of the time. Well, yeah, it does. But that emotional that emotional response to that loss can be hard to overcome. So that was somebody, somebody that posted about this in the group a couple of days ago, where they were talking about that, like that they were not satisfied with their advisor, not really satisfied because they were looking at what had occurred in the past 10 years as far as comparing it to the S&P 500. And my response was basically that a financial advisor can be a really great thing because the Dalbar study shows that people make a lot of behavioral mistakes that if you're okay with what they're charging you, that a financial advisor can be extremely valuable to someone to not make those behavioral mistakes and also to say, explain in greater detail like this was the brokerage i was referring to it was more like it was done online so i didn't really interact with them like face to face yeah um i didn't go into an office or whatever if i had done that um i might have we might have been better off because the the emotional connection i had with the advisor or whatever might have made made sense as far as how they explained it to me and me having more trust in how that would, you know, that higher asset allocation would have worked out. But 
I'm happy. I, I'm not really, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not unhappy with anything that, that we've done. Um, it's just that, yeah, I can see both ways. I can see how an advisor can be. But I would also say that that was what one of the things that really attracted me to you and the group was when you were talking about fees and about AUMs and stuff like that and about fee-only advisors, how that really kind of compared to like the boggleheads were always talking and preaching about expense ratios and that you really need to cut your expenses as much as possible. So I think I've said this before, but I think some of what you're saying is very similar to what Jack Bogle was saying a long time ago about fees and reducing fees and that you have control over just a very few things when it comes to investing. Well, how much it costs you to invest and to um, do your finances has a lot to do with your expenses. So how will you do as So what you're basically saying is if you have more of an idea of how much you're being charged, and if you're not being charged as much in the long run, you're going to do better. Right. That makes a lot of sense to it kind of reminded me of what Jack Bogle said about mutual funds. When you lower expenses, you're helping the customer. If you're helping the customer, that's going to really catch on and that's going to be really beneficial for people. So Exactly. There's no investment. There's no service so good that a high enough fee can't make it bad. Right. Um, and, and this isn't, not to make this too much about advisors, like this, this episode isn't a pitch to say you should or shouldn't use an advisor. I think lots of people shouldn't and are, and are fine without. Those that do, it's not just about can you perform better, you know, can your investments do better than X or or whatever. Any advisor is trying to sell you on investment performance is is not being honest with themselves about what they actually do or or can do. And advisors, good advisors are are like anything else, it's a professional service. They shouldn't be cheap. I'm not advocating you should find an advisor that's only charged you three hundred bucks a year. That's probably not worth much to to do that. But I can say firsthand, there was a lot, a lot of bloat in advisory fees and how much revenue uh, many, many firms make. Um, I don't want to get too off on a, on a thing here, but yeah, th- there's, there's different ways. Thankfully, in the last handful of years, there's, there's really a growth in advisors willing and able to charge differently, structure fees differently, provide services differently and in a more comprehensive way. Many times it ends up what you get. And what you what you get could be more. What you pay could be less than traditional fee billing methods. Uh, not necessarily all the time, but in many cases, for many folks, you can end up getting as good or better service for for a lower fee. So, uh, all right. Next, if you have a significant other, which which you do, you mentioned, and one of you is actively engaged in retirement planning while the other is not, how are you planning for the potential of the actively involved person passing before the other? I have a very detailed um, list of items for my wife to read through. Um, it's called In the Event of David's Death that she's already looked at. And I also have a summary page because it's pretty it's pretty detailed. But I have a summary page of the important things that she should do um, right off the top. Like if I pass away, right. um, we also have quarterly meetings where we discuss our expenses and what we have coming in, what we have going out. Um, I've also worked really hard to try to simplify everything 
as much as possible so that we have fewer accounts, fewer um, mutual funds. Um, simplify, simplify, simplify is, is basically what we tried to do or what I've tried to do so that there really wouldn't be a whole lot that she would find difficult. The other thing I would also encourage people to do is that you need to practice with the person that's not the financial manager. The financial manager needs to practice doing things with them. So in other words, if you call if you call the brokerage, like if you're going to do something, you're going to sell something or you're going to buy something, whatever it is that you're going to do, not that you're doing that very often during the year, but when you do do it, you should do it with your wife. And you maybe want to have them do it right. because you already know how to do it. You already know how to do all these things. It's better to have your your spouse practice doing those things with you. So if they have any questions or they have any issues or whatever, they can bring it up with you right at that time and you can solve that so that they understand, okay, now, because if you don't practice something and then you just leave a bunch of papers for somebody right. to read after you pass away, they're still going to have a hard time, even if you've really simplified it, if they haven't practiced it. Especially, so. especially if the circumstances are such that you, you know you pass in an untimely way, and then there's the yeah. everything else going on in life. Um, so now I'm just curious. It sounds like in in your case with, with Cheryl, she's in, involved enough. You have these quarterly meetings, etc. In, in many cases, the the non-active spouse in or partner in the uh, you know financial comings and goings of of the household wants nothing to do. Maybe they're they're concerned about acknowledging your potential mortality and just will completely shut down the idea of being involved at all. Was it like that at all with Cheryl, or was she sort of from the beginning kind of willing and able to ha have some hand in this and, and you know go through a bit of the intro? I'd say that she was a very active participant, okay. and the only thing is she sometimes she grows weary of me talking about financial things from. After I watch a YouTube video or <laughs> I relate something in the news to like a financial thing, she'll say, eh, you need to go back to that group on Facebook and like post those <laughs> ideas. Right. <laughs> okay. So now we have some a uh, little bit more technical questions. Some of the number nerds out there might like. Um, we already sort of touched on this, but if you were retired before 65, which you were in your case, we, we know now you're 65 and on Medicare. What did you do for healthcare from the time you weren't, you know, you stopped working up until 65 and started Medicare? So in 2014, we went on the Affordable Care Act and we were on that. Um, Cheryl is still on that. She'll be going off of it this year. So basically what that entailed was understanding when it first started that it was really important to control your modified adjusted gross income so that as you keep your magi lower you get more of a subsidy so that was basically what we focused on was trying to keep the magi um as low as possible to enhance the the subsidy payment um just to give you a, a rough number it kind of averaged out to about 600 dollars we paid which would be the premium and our medical costs was $600 per month. And the subsidy payment, the um, premium tax credit ended up being about $1,000 a month. Now that averaged over the last 10 years. And of course, that's not 
you know, based on the time value of money or whatever, but just to give people rough numbers. Um, I think that one thing people need to realize too is with the Affordable Care Act, you get the insurance and you get, you know, you get the subsidies, but you still can have, if you have, if you go with, we usually went with a bronze plan, mm-hmm. which meant that it was a real high, high deductible plan. So in the years where we had any kind of issues, we didn't really have a lot of issues, but there were some years where it was more expensive. It was more costly. So people need to build that margin into if they're going to retire early, that they're not going to be able to, in most cases, be able to have the same kind of insurance that they had when they were employed, because the employers probably picking up, you know, 80, 80 or 90 percent of the costs. And when you look at what the Affordable Care Act, just using me as an example, it probably was more like we paid maybe 35 percent and they paid 65 percent. And that was even trying to control the um, income levels, the Magi and trying to keep that as low as possible. So, yeah. Okay. And just curious, did the did the uh, ACA work out well? This all depends what state you live in, what policy you get. But how was your experience overall, aside from the premium subsidies and stuff, just in general, the coverage and et cetera? I would say the coverage was good. Um, in the beginning, there were some insurance companies that we liked that weren't involved with the ACA in the particular county that we live in. So we had to go in the first year with a company that we really didn't know as well. It still worked out okay. But then what happened gradually as the Affordable Care Act started becoming more profitable for insurance companies, more insurance companies joined. So the companies that we liked were actually included in the plan. So probably for the last five or six years out of the 10 years, we really had the plans that we liked and the companies that we liked and the the thing that I would caution people about when they look at the Affordable Care Act is that you want to make sure that you don't have a skinny network because what happens with some of these plans, they're, they're more that they have a lot of Medicaid patients in the plan. And so their um, provider list is going to be somewhat skinny or somewhat limited. So you want to make sure that you, you have your providers covered and the broader the network that you can get it probably makes sense to pay a little bit more in premium to have a broader broader network because I always think that health insurance is for downside protection. You're protecting against like catastrophic loss. So that's how I always looked at it was, but you still want to have those providers that that you would have a greater um, number of people that if you have a medical problem that's severe, that you don't want to have a real limited you know provider network. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Good, good points. Social security. What, what is the uh, your approach for claiming social security for yourself and or Cheryl? So Cheryl took hers at sixty two, because she had worked from the age of sixteen until she stopped working after we were married for the first five years. So um, she also had done a little bit of work afterwards, just like a. Um, like a side job where it was just one day a week um, where she made just a little tiny bit of money, but that even that tiny bit of money helped with the social security. So she took hers early and I'm taking mine at 70. 
And the reason I'm taking mine at 70 is because it's going to be the largest possible benefit so that if I were to pass away, that she would take that larger benefit. And it's significantly more than what her benefit is, especially with her taking it at 62 and not working as many years. So um, I follow Mike Piper. Um, He's written a lot on Social Security, and I've read a lot of his books um, some on social security, others taxes and stuff like that. And that is kind of like what his recommendation is, is because the way it works with longevity is that there's a pretty good chance that if you both make it to 65, one of you is probably going to make it into your nineties. Yeah. So that to me is the best way to have downside protection for Cheryl in, in the event that, that I would pass away. And so the, other thing that I know you're going to ask me about a little bit later, but I'll chime in now with it, is it also affords us to be able to do Roth conversions, which I have been doing, even though we're on the Affordable Care Act insurance, I've been doing some small small Roth conversions, and I plan on continuing to do the Roth conversions um, up until I start Social Security and then a little bit more after Social Security starts at 70, but we're going to be in the um, either 12 or 15% bracket, you know, if the changes take place in 2026. So that was that that's kind of like the plan. So it kind of allows us to do a little bit more on the Roth conversions. And the reason I'm doing that is because that kind of allows her to have another pool of money that she can that she can draw from if if changes take place. I see changes taking place you know, in the future with regards to taxes and, you know, the whole idea behind the spousal um, problem with they get cut, their standard deduction gets cut in half and the tax rates get compressed, all that. So that would be beneficial to her. So that's kind of like what our plan is. Got it. And and I didn't ask before, I know you uh, said it indirectly that she's not yet 65. So, so you're older than Cheryl, but how much younger is she? How old is she currently? She's, she'll turn 65 this year. Oh, okay. So she's fourteen. Yeah, she's she's um she's she's not she's a little bit more than a year older or a year younger. Okay, got it. Yeah, I just thought that you know to the extent she was ten years or more younger than you, that's worth digging into a little more, just because there's other planning considerations around it. Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, so Roth conversions, great segue. That was actually going to be my next question. So you said you are doing conversions. What's your your why? You already said that. If you were to predecease Cheryl, that um, you know taxes get more punitive for the survivor, so that that'll help her by having Roth money instead of pre-tax. But outside of that, any other um, reasons for for you and your scenario that you think Roth conversions are uh, beneficial? Well, it's like you've talked about um, t- tax diversification um, at, and your asset location, like to to have like a buckets in, in different pots to be able to draw from gives you like in engineering, they call it degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. So the more options you have, the better it is. So that's kind of like what we did that for so that she would have more options as, um, to, as a pool of money, different pools of money that, that she can draw from. Um, that, that was basically the reason. And the same thing for us too, being married that in the future, it just gives us more flexibility as far as, <clears throat> when we decide as we're taking money out that depending on where taxes are at, how we want to choose to take it each year. Yeah. And that's an important concept. Anyone who's been following 
my stuff for a while, knows my views on this. It's incredibly difficult to the point it's impossible to try to nail down a quantification of how much Roth assets you should have, how much you should convert, uh, not just necessarily this year, but like bigger picture, you know, longer term conversion plan. There's so many unknowns and variables about the future that, that we can't possibly predict. But what it does is having or shifting some money from pre-tax accounts like IRAs or 401ks into the Roth versions of those accounts gives you flexibility, gives you optionality, gives you tax diversity such that regardless what the future holds or how bad taxes might get if they do get bad, you have a little more discretionary control over the taxability of, of your income because you'll have a larger pot of Roth money than you otherwise would have. So there's value in that. I can't prove today how much that's worth or may not be worth, but uh, having the optionality, that in and of itself is, is, is worth something. Now to different people, it's worth different amounts, but um, it's, it's valuable nonetheless. That's why I really like that article that you wrote um, on Roth conversions and the ambiguity. So that's, I always think that the more conservative people are and their assumptions and the more conservative they are as far as our tax brackets, where they weren't going to go up into, that that's probably a better choice. Because like you said, there's a lot of ambiguity, but the more conservative you are, you kind of like whittle down that ambiguity a little bit so that you're probably going to be better off if, you, if you're more conservative because you really don't know what the future is going to be like. Right. Yep. Uh, next question we, we already got ahead of, but asked, do you own a home? If so, was it a real be paid off in retiring? So your answer is yes, you own your home. Yes, it's paid off. Um, you also said you don't, as of now, plan on moving, but maybe just looking forward a little more, um, is your house able to age in place or any other concerns or thoughts around, is this really your, your forever home uh, for, for both of you? I could see us maybe at some point in time in our 80s, going into a condominium or something similar to that, because we live in a split level. So there's steps, but there's not like a lot of steps. But that can be, see, one of the advantages of being an occupational therapist is a lot of what I did was home evaluations. So I evaluated people's homes for like safety and like stair lifts and all these kind of things that you would need to make it accessible, more accessible. Well, we've done a lot of those things already, like bars in our bathrooms and and that kind of thing to, to make it more like friendly for somebody that's retiring. But yeah, if we were to have um if we were to have the inability to be able to go up steps and stuff, we might have to make some some changes. But um yeah, at present I would say it's we're still planning on just staying here as long as possible. Next one. I mean, this we can probably spend an hour on, so let's do the best we can talking through it, but um, investments, what's your plan, your approach for investment allocations, bucketing, distribution strategy, et, et cetera. I'm kind of wrapping a lot of things in here, but trying to put it on sure. of investments and portfolio. So however you feel like best addressing that. So we're 50, 50 which was uh, 50% stocks, 50% bonds. That was uh, Jack Boggle's favorite asset allocation. And also Harry Markowitz, the um, creator of modern portfolio theory. And I like the quote that he said, Jack Boggle said that if you're a 50-50, it always gives you something to be happy and unhappy about. Right. That's true. 
and and so so that's your overall allocation um a little bit about maybe i should break this up into specific questions going forward but like distribution strategy we didn't really get into do you have pension that covers your expenses or if not are you pulling from your portfolio presumably yes and if so what approach or what process or method are you using to figure out how much you can take out where to take it from etc we're using the rmd approach to um distribution so that's basically the number would be about three percent right now for somebody that's 65 years old and then that scales up but it's a pretty conservative the way the rmd works is it's more conservative in the beginning which kind of fits our temperament so that's kind of like what we follow and i also would say that um we're not rigid as far as to say oh well we can't spend more than you know this this year we can't spend more than three percent or we always have to be locked in to a certain percentage i think that what you always want to do with anything when you do numbers is you always want to build in a little spread in there, like a little bit of of room so that if you're not, and it kind of goes back to like that, we're not really big. um, We're we're pretty frugal people and we're not really big spenders. We don't travel. Um, We know what our expenses are. We've monitored them for so long. And like, we have a lifestyle that um is is pretty modest and again like i said before we we live in a pretty low cost of living area in fact the area that i live in was just named in um u.s news and world's report as the number one least expensive housing area in the united states for 2024 youngstown ohio area 2024 the the least expensive so if you want to buy a house this is the place to do it oh good to know okay so for everyone listening low cost living area okay and where is that uh in the state which quadrant if you will of, of ohio? Uh, northeastern ohio northeastern okay yep all right uh this next batch of questions is specifically for people who are already retired so that they will apply to you other folks who come on this show they you know they could ask these if they're not already retired, but uh, how did you find the emotional transition of going from accumulating saving assets to, to decumulating now having to spend assets in retirement? Well, I would say that we haven't reached that point yet. Um, we're still, <clears throat> we still save because our expenses are, are fairly low. And so we haven't started to really spend. Um, in fact, that's what my wife and I have had a conversation about the last six months to a year as far as to say like when we talk about spending i said well you know we could spend we if we wanted to if there's something that you want or something she would like there's not really anything i need so, well, so what income do you have well, just Cheryl's social security or uh do you have we, we have we have yeah her social security and um so we're basically leaving on that and we have we bucketed um out our savings. So we have like a pretty, a pretty good chunk of money in um, a bank account that would tie us through if, you know, the market goes up or down or whatever fluctuates that, um, that we've been living off of. So that's kind of how we, how we, how we've done that. So you are using the portfolio, but you're not, uh, yeah, we're spending below the, the, that RMD, that, yeah, the, we're not really spending as much as we probably 
could be spending if we if we wanted to spend a little bit more because our because our expenses are really are really pretty low. Sure. Got it. Okay. Um speaking of expenses, what expenses are more than you thought they would be in retirement, if any? Um housing and healthcare. Like we talked about the, the Medicare, there's a lot of gaps in Medicare that um yeah, I was kind of aware of it when you know I did the research and stuff like that. But I think that for most people, they think that when they go from their regular insurance to Medicare, if they're just still working, it's going to be similar. It's not. There's like a lot of gaps, like especially that Part B. You either you need to have a if you decide you want to go the supplement route, you definitely need to have a supplement because the Part B um, exposure is eighty twenty. That twenty percent is unlimited exposure. So if you had cancer and you were getting drugs that were under Part B, if you didn't have a supplement plan, you'd be on the hook for, if you had a $100,000 cost, you'd be on the hook for $20,000 a year if you didn't have any kind of supplement plan. So like the cost, the gaps that um, need to be filled in. Um, so you, you're definitely going to have that. Plus you're going to have your drug plan, supplement plan, your Medicare B um, costs. Um, and housing, <clears throat> housing was a little bit like, even though we have paid off our house, we've had some issues with some water problems that required like um, a French drain system, but we weren't kind of expecting that. So that was like a little bit more costly. And since inflation has kind of reared its ugly head the last couple of years, the cost of like, we have a barn in the back where we store um, our lawnmowers and all of our, we have a above ground pool. We store everything in the barn. Well, it needs to have a new roof. But when we had the quotes done on the roofing, boy, I couldn't believe how expensive it was that they wanted for a, a barn that really isn't, you know, it's not like a regular barn that you house cows in or anything like that. It's like a small storage barn, but how expensive that was. So I think the, the price of having things done around your house is, kind of went up significantly in the last two year, few years due to the pandemic and supply chain issues and shortages. And the thing about inflation, I think like sometimes my wife and I talk, I'll say, you know, yeah, inflation's come down, but the prices are never going back down. That's deflation. You don't, you don't want deflation. You want, you want my, you want a small amount of inflation because that's good for the economy or whatever. But the prices that you see for food and for, things being repaired people aren't going to cut their prices by 30 percent so it's always going to be as expensive as now or if not more expensive in the future right so that, housing and housing and healthcare were a little bit more pricey than what we had planned i just want to touch on that briefly you said a great uh observation that people should know about inflation versus deflation versus disinflation there's a difference um you know we all know prices got a lot more expensive for most things over the last few years due to pandemic and supply chain issues and what have you. And inflation was as measured by CPI, the consumer price index was up eight, 9% for, you know, for one year and then five for another, et cetera. Now inflation's bumping around is 3% give or take. I forget what the last measure was. So everyone's like, great, inflation's coming down. It's like technically true. Yes. Inflation's coming down. It just means that prices are inflating less fast, less fast. Yeah were a year ago as a whole prices aren't coming down they're still going up 
just going up at a much slower rate. So to your point, after factoring in that the 9% increase we had in inflation a year or so ago, that, that's the new baseline of prices for things. Yeah. That baseline now is going up slower than it was before. Um, some things have come down, uh, have deflated, like chicken, the price of eggs, for example, came down, at least near me. I don't know if it's nationally. Apparently they shot up. A lot of the reason they shot up was because there was some chicken virus or something going around that killed off a lot of, a lot of birds. Uh, and, and gasolines come down. I mean, that's always been volatile and whips around. It's a lot less to do with political powers and presidencies and people want to think it's a whole host of factors that drive gas prices and oil prices. But so, so inflation is prices going up. Deflation is prices going down. That, that rarely happens. Disinflation is what we have now. There's still inflation, but at, but at a lower rate than there was. That's disinflation. But to your point, prices are still high. They're probably not coming down. They're just going up slower. So great point. Um, also, while on the topic of expenses, how about the other side? What expenses, if any, are less than you'd thought they'd be? Um, you know what? Since we really kind of track our expenses, there really hasn't been anything that's been too surprising that way. Um, so I would probably say not really anything I can, I can think of. Okay. Good. It just goes to show, you know, good planning and uh, a lot of attention to it ahead of time. You can hopefully minimize a lot of the surprises. So. Uh, what did you think would be more difficult or challenging about retirement than actually is? Um, I thought maybe because as an occupational therapist, I spent a lot of time with people. And then when I retired and the pandemic um, came, we were, when I first was slowing down, we were taking a lot of bus trips. We we're taking a lot of one day bus trips to different places um, that we kind of curtailed when the pandemic happened. So initially I thought, and I think maybe I'm gonna feel a little bit lonely or I'm going to feel like maybe um, when you work in healthcare and you take care of people and you help them, you get a lot of um, value from that. And when you stop doing that, I was afraid, well, what am I going to replace that with? Like, what am I going to replace that helping other people with? Well, <clears throat> as it turns out, what's kind of happened the last few years is that some of the people in our families have had needs they have needed help with things um especially when it comes to like medical issues and stuff like that so like we've been going to like doctors visits with them because i kind of i'm pretty knowledgeable when it comes to like healthcare and medicine that sort of thing so i've been doing that so that was kind of like a nice replacement and then um yeah i thought maybe that i would feel like the loss of meaning and purpose was going to be like um, really hard, but it seemed like I found other things that kind of replaced it. And I'd also say too that um, part of my answer would also include your your group that that was a, that was perfect perfect timing for me because during the pandemic that it kind of gave me an outlet to even though it's not the same as you know having lunch with somebody face to face, it still gave me an outlet to interact with people and also to feel like. I help people like I feel like in the group that when we are helping people that that's got value to it, um, even though it's done in like small quantities for each person, it's still it's still very valuable. Yeah, 100 percent is you share a lot of great stuff, even if one person 
find something valuable from it and it changes the trajectory of their life, even by a small amount, that's well worth it. Now you might never know that or get that feedback from people, but I, I guarantee, you know, rest assured, there's lots of people who have benefited from what you've done in the group. So you, you're definitely adding value to it. So I'm glad it's able, you know, you're getting something out of it too. Like you said, some of that yeah. involvement. So um, you know, everybody wins. So good. Okay. Um, what was the worst or most inaccurate advice or information you were given about retirement? Buy Bitcoin and put it in your Roth IRA. Or take Social Security at 62. It's running out of money. Government's running out of money. Right. But you did not heed that advice. So you are delaying till No, I did not. Yep. Yeah, okay. Uh, what was the most surprising financial thing about retiring or being in retirement, if any? I don't think there's been really a lot of surprises. Um, yeah, it's kind of when you when you track things the way we the way we've tracked them for for so long. And I, I like I like numbers. I like spreadsheets. I play with spreadsheets a lot. When you do that, like you kind of have a really, eh, you have an awareness of what's what's happening. So there's not really, yes, sure you could have, um, you could have the Great Depression. I don't expect that though. I mean, that's always possible. But I, I always think that yeah, there's always things that are going to come up that are going to be unexpected. But like if you've done the planning, if you've done the planning, then they shouldn't really come as that much of a surprise like that whole idea of black swans. You know, you can't predict a black swan, of course. I mean, who would have predicted the pandemic? Like right. who would have predicted that? Well, who would have also predicted during the pandemic that it would have went down, the market went down so much and it comes back up the way it did too. Who would have okay. predicted that? Yeah, so there's, there's a certain amount of unpredictability in everything. But if you've planned, you've done the best that you can and you just have to live with that. And if something is so black swanish, so out there that, it, you know, so far beyond the realm of what anyone thought was realistically possible, and that does significantly impair your plan, there's nothing you could have really done about it anyway, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That makes people feel better necessarily, but, you know, it is what it is. You can't plan for the absolute worst possible thing you could ever think of, because if you do, no one's plan is ever going to be uh, uh, strong enough. Right. Um, similar question, but non-financial side, what, if anything, was the most surprising non-financial thing about retiring? I guess we already sort of discussed that, but anything in particular jump out? No, there really hasn't been that much again. Um, that's, that's been surprising. Um, I guess the value that you get, like, I think sometimes when you work, like I call it the fog of work. Like sometimes when you work so much, like you have a little bit of a mental fog that you're not really seeing things as clearly as you could be. When you re when you retire, when you get ready to uh, retire and you have the time, like you get more ability to be intentional and to value like the small pieces of time that you maybe didn't notice when you were working so much. So I'd say that was probably surprising to me how like the little things um, in life become so much more important. Good observation. 
So you have one final question, but I want you, I know we chatted before we went live here. You have an interesting story and uh, indirect kind of claim to fame, I guess. Everyone says <laughs> <Can you> <laughs> that before we get to the final question. Yeah. So like the big reveal, this is the, this is a big, big reveal. Um, so I've always wanted to say this for, for the end of, since this is the fir- first podcast that I've ever been on, I wanted to reveal it. Taylor Swift and I have something in common that isn't shared by very many people. Taylor Swift grew up working on a Christmas tree farm, and so did I. My grandfather bought uh, 80 acres of land during the Depression for $20 an acre. And on that land, he put Christmas trees, which he then sold. Well, as I was growing up, I would help sell the Christmas trees. And my first memory of that is my mother putting $5 bills into a cigar box because my grandfather liked to smoke cigars into a cigar box. And that's how much the Christmas tree was, was $5. So that that experience um, was what she um, grew up with too. And also she wrote a song about that, the Christmas tree farm that she's well known by her followers for. So based on that story, by extension, you are a world famous entertainer right <laughs> exactly <laughs> and i'm responsible for like what is a point point one oh of the gdp going up because <laughs> her concerts created like a billion dollars of additional revenue for the gdp so it kind of pushed the economy a little bit in a positive direction yep and you have uh you, you know ultimately your grandfather has something to do with that so absolutely all right final question if you can give only one piece of advice or guidance to others about retirement planning what would it be Uh, My favorite quote by Leonardo da Vinci is, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Simplify, simplify, simplify. That's Henry David Thoreau. Those are very, very good words because the more complex things are, the harder they are to understand and the more difficult they are going to be if your spouse has to take over for them to understand too. So if there's one idea, I would say, with finances, try to keep it as simple as possible, simpler investments, fewer fewer mutual funds, fewer whatever you're doing. The, the easier it is to understand, the easier it is for you to make good decisions. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And uh, the retirement IRA show, which I, I believe you follow as well with Jim Saulnier and Chris Stein, Chris repeatedly says, and I think he may have gotten this from someone else, but try to make things as simple as they can be and no more simple. Like, like, like boil it down to as basic, as easy as it could possibly be. Don't make it more basic to the point that, that it, that's detrimental. But uh, in many cases, there's lots of ways to trim things down and streamline it from what it's currently at. And that's a really hard thing to do, like to simplify it and, and, and make it boil it down. That's really hard work to do that because the world we live in is very complex Yes. Um, with social media and different ideas. And um, yeah, it's, it's really, you have to spend a lot of time on simplification, but if you do it, it's really probably the most valuable thing you can do. And a lot of people find it hard to simplify that. They feel like things need to be fancier, have more bells and whistles, be more complicated. They feel like they need 15 different funds instead of three or four in their portfolio. They feel like watching CNBC and reading some news headline, oh, you know, I got to do something. I got to trade this, buy that. 
was it was it John Bogle? I don't remember. We making this up, but someone's quote apparently was, "Don't just do something; stand there." That's that's Jack Bogle. Was it okay? Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's hard to fight the urge to feel like you should be doing something, even even as a you know paid advisor. Same thing. I, I part of me is like I feel like I should be doing more. You know, clients might be expecting something out of me today, this week, this month. <laughs> But many times, no, like the right answer is no, nothing needs to be done. The plan is intentionally set up this way. It's as simple as it can be. No, we don't need to trade just because the market's up a little bit or down a little bit today, et cetera. So um, yeah, no, great advice. Keep, keep things simple, as simple as it can be, as clean as it can be, as streamlined as it can be. You'll ultimately appreciate it for yourself, but not even you. But when you're gone, depending who has to administer your estate and you know clean up your affairs, he or she will be thankful that uh, you kept things as simple as they could be. So... All right. Well, that's that. Any uh, parting words, comments, questions? No, that's, I think we covered a lot, Andy. Yeah. Th- thank you for, for your time. I think this went well and um, great answers. And, and thank you for being so open and honest about everything. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure. All right. Thank you everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Well, that's it for my chat with David Fultz. I hope you all enjoyed it and found it useful. And again, the intention with these episodes is that you listening can hopefully with at least some of these guests and at least some of their uh, circumstances, you can you can find a little bit of yourself in them. And maybe they have concerns or comments or planning issues or other things that may be applicable to you. And you hopefully uh, glean a little insight and knowledge and, and or comfort from from, you know, hearing other people's stories and experiences. So hope you enjoyed. Uh, as always, if you like this podcast, please give it a nice thumbs up and a glaringly positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And if you haven't yet as well, also check out the Retirement Planning Education Facebook group, the Retirement Planning Education YouTube channel, and my company's newsletter, Retirement Planning Insights. You can find links to all of those in the notes to this show. Well, that was it. Thank you as always for listening, and I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.